Please remain standing. I'm going to read from Psalm 119, the next section. We looked at the first section last week, verses 1 through 8, and this morning we'll look together at this next section, the Baith section, beginning in verse 9 and going through verse 16. Remember, as I read and as you follow along, this is God's Word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray once more. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We recognize when we open it that we are, as it were, treading on holy ground. So minister to us, we pray. Give us open ears in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. If you do a a study of what different philosophers have said, have identified as the great questions in life, you get a number of different answers. Uh, There's some similarity. There's some overlap. There are great philosophical questions that seem to be asked over and over again. Uh, The same is true when it comes to practical questions. If you do a survey of business literature and... and, and, (laughs) Try to ask the question, what are, what are the questions I should be asking of myself and my performance as a, as a business person? You'll get some overlap and also some distinct answers. I encountered an article in Inc. magazine that tried to address the 15 most important questions you should ask yourself right now. And it'll probably be no surprise to you that while some were perceptive, many of them were fairly shallow Uh, For what must I forgive myself? How can I take care of myself? How can I surround myself with better people? Those are the kinds of questions that the writer of that article asked. And I say all this because this section, this section of Psalm 119, begins with a profound question. And it's a question that, because of its familiarity, I think we don't often stop to ask ourselves. It really is, though, one of the great questions of human existence, one of the great challenges to all of us. You know it well. It's in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, I just want to think about this question and try to emphasize how significant it is with an illustration simply from one area of purity. How can a young man keep his way pure? We know there are many facets to the life of a young man, but let me just consider one for a moment. Let's consider sexual purity. I don't want to belabor you with statistics. These are probably statistics you've heard before, but but let me just mention these to you because I think they shed light on this question. And the profundity of this question, the depth of this question, this is not a question to be lightly passed over. This is actually a question you should 
be considering on a regular basis. So, so think about purity here. According to the statistics that I've read in various places, they all seem to match up. They seem to be following the same studies. 11, age 11, is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography. 94% of American children will view this by the age of 14. When it comes to church-going men, 68% of church-going men and more than 50% of pastors recorded as viewing pornography on a regular basis. In the cohort of young, this is a young man, professing Christians, 18 to 24 years old, the statistics tell us 76% actively search for pornography. That's the air we breathe during this day and age. We could consider other life-destroying sins as well. I'm just picking one because the statistics are fairly easy to access. But if you were to think about anger or think about drunkenness or envy or greed or lying, all of which not only have the potential of shipwrecking your faith, but certainly of shipwrecking your ministry. And probably those I've listed have close to 100% rates of being regularly broken by those who name Christ's name. There's an almost magnetic attraction to sin even sin that will destroy us completely, that we've seen destroy others completely. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had it many times in pastoral ministry where I've sat with someone after some great sin had been committed or or some had been uncovered at least. You sort of look at the person and you say, how how did this happen? And they they, they kind of stare back at you blankly. I I, I don't know. I'm not even sure how I've reached this place. Archibald Alexander said, in all sin, there is some bait, some apparent good, some expectation of pleasure or profit from unlawful indulgence. But as we know, all of this is a lie. Now, this isn't just the air we breathe, the water we swim in societally, and even in our churches. But the Bible tells us that there's a deeper problem The deeper problem isn't just exposure to sinful things or being surrounded by sinful things. The real problem, of course, is the heart itself. The Bible tells us that the heart's deceitful. It's desperately sick. Tells us in the Proverbs, folly is bound up in the heart of the child. In the heart of the child, folly is bound up. Commenting on this verse, verse 9, and the first part of verse 9, Thomas Manton puts it this way. So the sum of the question is this. How shall a man that is impure and naturally defiled by sin be made able, as soon as he cometh to the use of reason, to purge out that corruption and live a holy and pure life unto God? How indeed? How? Can a young man keep his way pure? Well, what's the answer that this verse gives to us? Really, this is the theme of the whole section. The answer to this profound, deep question that you should be asking yourself 
is in the end of verse 9, by guarding it according to your word. The only way a young man can keep his way pure is by guarding it, the psalmist says. Now, this word for guard is not a particularly unusual word. It's actually found throughout the Old Testament. It's usually translated as to as to keep something or to, to, to watch over something carefully. Sometimes it does have this sort of military guarding aspect, which is what the English word connotes to us. It's the word that's used of Abraham when he keeps the covenant and the laws that God's given him. It's the, it's the word that's used uh, that, that, that the Lord gives to the priest to watch over various aspects of tabernacle worship. Uh, we see it used throughout uh, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, often in a military context, and then also in a covenantal context. You know, you're keeping something, but you're also guarding something, maybe even something material. And that's the first thing we need to see in verse nine: that keeping the way pure isn't something that happens by accident or by default. It's not something we naturally just sort of fall into or naturally would expect anyone else to fall into. Given our heart, given our surroundings, no, it has to be guarded, the psalmist says. It has to be guarded, not just in any way, but guarded according to God's word. I think that's a profoundly important point of what the psalmist says. It's not just that we have to be vigilant in order to maintain any semblance of purity, we have to be vigilant according to the word of God. You know, there are people who discipline themselves for various tasks, who hold themselves to high standards. Some people seem to have great self-discipline. Some people seem to have very little self-discipline. But the key here is this. The key here is the standard by which we're guarding ourselves. We're guarding ourselves not just by any standard, not just by our own standard of right and wrong, but no, rather according to the word of God. You need to think about yourself when it comes to verse 9. Even if you guard your life in some measure, what, what standard is it guarded by? Is it guarded by the standard of the expectations of your parents or other people in your life? Is it guarded by what people think or what they might be in danger of finding out about you? Is it guarded simply by uh, traditional obligations, traditional kinds of standards of behavior, the kinds of things that Peter at some point might call feudal things inherited from your forefathers? No, our, our lives need to be guarded and they need to be guarded and governed by, by this standard, the standard of God's word. I wonder if that's clear, even from people who sit under your teaching, even who, from people who sit under your authority. In your families, is it obvious to your children that the, the, the kinds of standards we have for guarding ourselves are, are Bible standards? They're not simply standards that we've developed on our own. They're standards that God's given to us in his word. Now, the rest of this section really, in a sense, is a kind of unpacking of that thesis. There's a deep question, a profound question, and there's a clear answer. But then what the psalmist does, and you'll see this in every verse, except verse 12, is he then begins to use the word I 
So in verse 10, I seek. In verse 11, I have stored. In verse 13, I declare. In verse 14, I delight. In verse 15, I will meditate. And in verse 16, again, I will delight. And what the writer is really doing is he's unpacking for us, he's unfolding for us what it looks like to guard your way according to the word of God. What would it look like if this were actually the standard? And if you took seriously the need to guard your life, guard your way. Well, he's going to tell us. The first thing he's going to say is this. In verse 10, as he unfolds what guarding according to your word looks like, he says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. You know, if you, if you seek something with your whole heart, we've seen this language of the whole heart earlier in the psalm in the first section. And I mentioned when we looked at it then that this notion of, of loving with your whole heart, of being wholly devoted in the heart is, is, a, is a significant term in Scripture. It's the, it's the way to identify kings that are, that are righteous before God and are seeking to obey Him. It's, it's, it's the kind of command that's given in the law in Deuteronomy that we're to love God with our whole heart. But I want to make another point here, which is this in verse 10. If you're seeking something with your whole heart, whatever it is, there's very little room for peripheral things. In other words, if you're wholly given over to this one thing, then many other things will have to be cast aside. Certainly, if you're, given, you're giving your whole heart to seek the Lord, there's almost no room in there for laziness. One commentator when speaking particularly about this in ministers, says this, if the study is a lounge, the pulpit will be impertinence. In other words, what he means is this, that if you're, if you're not giving yourself over to an intense study of God's word, if you're not studying God's word with your heart, how would you expect your ministry to have any satisfactory end to it? But it's true not just in ministry, but in all of life. If you're devoted to something with your whole heart, you can't be glancing over your shoulder at something else that might demand your attention, that might want to grab a piece of your heart for itself. And so there are some diagnostic questions you can ask yourself along these lines. I wonder, we're just coming off the summer months. What books have you read or entertainment have you consumed more than God's Word? Do you know more about the upcoming football season than about the minor prophets, let's say? Now, it's good, of course. It can be a good part of life, the life that God's given us under the sun, to give ourselves to restful activities, to give ourselves to things that stimulate the mind in other ways. But I wonder, would it be said of you, were you to look honestly at your time, are you wholeheartedly seeking the Lord? See, that's what it means. That's part of what it means to guard your path according to the word of God. And if this is true of every young man, how much more should it be true of those who are devoting themselves to the ministry? You're supposed to be, the old, uh, the old writers would say, you're supposed to be a man of one book. 
supposed to be a one-book man. You need to know your Bible inside and out. You need to be devoting yourselves to these things. So if it's true of young men in general, it's even more true of ministers. With my whole heart, I seek you. Well, following right on that in verse 11, he gives another description of what it means to guard your way. He says this, I have stored up your word in my heart. You know, it's interesting because in this whole text, in this whole passage, sin is in view. Uh, We mentioned that he begins by asking this question, and this question really is set against the backdrop of our own sinfulness and of our own sinful society. How can a young man possibly keep his way pure? The only time sin is actually mentioned is in verse 11, and the antidote is given. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The, The remedy That the writer gives the only time he explicitly mentions sin and actually puts out in the foreground what's lurking in the background in the whole text. He puts it in there in opposition to storing up God's word in your heart. Isn't this exactly what we see in the temptation of Jesus? Jesus, of course, his temptation is Victory over Satan in the wilderness uh, has all kinds of significance for our lives, for our understanding of the Bible and of redemptive history. But, But at a very basic level, let's remember what happens when Jesus is tempted by Satan. It is written, he says, and then quotes Deuteronomy 8. Again, it is written the second time, Deuteronomy 6. Again, it is written the third time. Again, Deuteronomy 6. He had such a clear knowledge of the scriptures that he he refuted, he rebuked Satan and, and, and resisted temptation based upon the written word of God. And he explicitly says that. There's no... There's no wiggle room. Is this an illusion or isn't this illusion? No, no. It is written, Jesus says, instantly at the moment he's tempted. Well, how much more do we have to know God's word? So what does it mean to guard your ways according to the word? Well, it means devoting yourself to seek the Lord wholeheartedly. And it also means storing up God's word in your heart. Now, I I hardly need to tell you that doesn't come without work and effort. That's rarely something that comes naturally. It's something that requires diligence. It's something that requires a devotion of time and energy. And yet when it comes to sin, he says, what you need to have in your heart, since we're surrounded by sin and we have hearts that are factories of idols, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, look at what he says next in this description of the blessed man. In verse 13, with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. It's one thing to seek the Lord privately with your whole heart. It's yet another thing to store up his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. But this this goes into the public sphere. Because what the writer 
says, what the psalmist says is that he has not only stored up God's word, he's not only seeking after God, he's willing to declare all the rules of God with his mouth. I wonder if that could be said of you. It would seem obvious that it should be, but is it really the case? What are you ashamed of in the Bible? What, what, what topics emerge that cause you to want to change the subject? Because you don't want to be unfaithful to Scripture, but, but then again, it's a little bit embarrassing and awkward. Does that happen when the issue of homosexuality arises? Does that happen when someone presses you on heaven and hell? Does that happen when someone jokes with you about believing in angels? Does it happen when you're confronted with the Bible's teaching about money and how it might apply directly to the life of someone with whom you're speaking? What about the way of salvation itself? How often are we ashamed even of that glorious truth? And we show our shame because we meet many people whom we know are are seeking another way to God or, or no way at all. The Bible reveals to us with great clarity, abundant clarity, the marvelous salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ, freely offered in Jesus Christ to sinners. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Well, the next aspect of the profile is in verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Now, when I read something like this, I think back even on my own teaching experience. I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation with someone over the years, and, I, and I, I've never quite quoted this verse to them, but many in, in, over many, many years of being associated with Bible teaching and, and, and often formal theological instruction. I've met many, many people, and I'm sure anyone serving on the faculty would say the same. I've met many, many people who've said something, something like this. They've said, I, I'd love to study the Bible. Boy, I'd love to be able to do that. I'd love to know the Bible better. But I just don't have the time. Or, boy, I would love to take a class, but, but I'm not sure I can spare the money. Now, now, I've never quoted this verse to them because it would seem self-serving. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible actually makes these things very clear. Proverbs 4, 7 and 8 says this, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get insight, and she will exalt you. These things are more precious than riches or wealth, which will fade and perish. Now, again, I, I, I may appear self-interested, but, but it's right there in the text. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. And notice it's not just learning about the testimonies of God and understanding them better, it's actually walking in the testimonies of God, in the way of your testimonies. I, 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 I would rather walk in the way of Scripture than, than, than get, have any earthly gain. This is what the psalmist is saying. 
If you offer me wealth on this hand and success and earthly prestige on this hand, and the alternative is I get none of that, but I walk according to the scriptures, well, I delight in this as much as in all riches. This is part of what it looks like to guard your way according to the word of God. It's not simply private, it's public. And it's not simply your words, it's your actions, it's your priorities in life. More than riches, he loves the testimonies of God. In verses 15 and 16, he looks forward to the future and declares a few things, not just about what it would mean to guard his way now and what it does mean to guard his way now, but what it will look like for him to guard his way down the road. This is introduced as a question about the young man, but really the psalmist extends it to the future, to his life moving forward. What's his life going to look like tomorrow and five years from now? If you could meet the psalmist in 10 years or 15 years, what is it that you should expect him to be doing? Well, he says this in verses 15 and 16. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Let me tell you, I've said this before in chapel settings, but it's true that when you meet people who are near the end of their life, I just spoke to one this morning who's turning 90. You meet people who are near to the end of their life who have walked with the Lord. What they don't say to you is, I I feel like I pretty much know the Bible completely. I, I don't know that there's much more for me to learn. No, they never say that. They always talk to you about how much there is to learn. Other hobbies, other things fade and become less and less significant the closer you get to death, but not God's word and not God's ways. And so the psalmist says, here's what I'm fixing my eyes on in terms of my trajectory. I'm going to keep meditating on the precepts of God. What a wonderful life goal that is. This is what I'm doing now. And this is what I'm going to keep doing. And if you knock on my door in 20 years, you may not recognize me, but I'm going to be meditating on the precepts of God. Furthermore, he says, I'm going to be delighting in your statutes, delighting in these things that he already delights in more than riches. It has value now, and I'm going to keep valuing it then. I'm never going to give in to the siren song of wealth or other things. I'm going to just keep delighting in God's word. And I know that God's word has a depth and a richness that will fuel that delight, not just today, but on into the future. This isn't a phase for the psalmist. It isn't something that he checks a box off and then moves on from. No, no. Guarding according to your ways means delighting in God's word in the future. And finishes with, I will not forget your word. Now, I suppose it's possible that you could look at this list as the writer explains what he himself is giving himself over to and and, in explaining what it means to guard your life according to the word of God and keep the way pure for the young man. I suppose you could look at this as a kind of list of do's and don'ts, as a kind of legalism. 
I don't think that's at all what he has in mind, but it's possible, I imagine, that that could be preached that way or it could come across that way. And we have to remember, of course, what we're reminded of so many times by our spiritual fathers. Philip Melanchthon wrote, the law shows the disease, the gospel, the cure. But lest you think the psalmist is merely giving commands here, divorced from a a, a gospel superstructure, a, a gospel foundation that undergirds it. Look at verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. That's the one verse after verse 9 where he doesn't, directly use this word I, although he does ask the Lord to do something for him. He talks about the blessedness of the Lord. And when we look at the scriptures, it's undeniable. The Lord is blessed and he's blessed in himself. In other words, he is full of perfection. He needs nothing from any other source. Don't forget that we are creatures We're not adding something to him. Who's given a gift to him that he he should repay? Paul says. He needs nothing. He's self-sufficient. In him, we live and move and have our being. The Bible describes the Lord as the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one, according to John 5, who has life in himself. He's independent in his thought and in his counsel. Isaiah 40 says he's not informed by anyone. He's not given information by people that he lacks in some way. He's independent in his will. He's independent in his love. Remember how Hosea puts it in Hosea 14. I I will love them freely because that's how God's love is. It's it's free. he's He's not required to do this by some kind of external source. He's independent in his power. He doesn't profit from what we might give him. You probably know the words of our larger catechism, but it's helpful to remind us of them. What is God? God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Now. The psalmist wants to declare that here. Blessed are you, O Lord. And because God is infinite in blessedness and we are creatures, then God alone is the source of our blessing. There is no real blessing apart from him. This is how the whole psalm begins. Who walk according to the way of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies and seek him with his whole heart. Well, blessed by whom? Blessed by the Lord himself, because he is the blessed one, and all real blessing comes from him. And therefore, it follows that there's no salvation apart from the Lord, because what does Psalm 133 say comes out of Mount Zion? For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life evermore. And as This is picked up on in the New Testament. Jesus puts it this way in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Blessed are you, O Lord. Salvation and blessing comes from him alone. 
See, the psalmist recognizes that throughout all of his instruction, that it's from the Lord alone that we receive our blessing and the Lord alone who can save. But look at this in the end of verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Not only does salvation come from God alone, not only does true blessing come from God alone, but the God who is the source of blessing, the God who is the ever-blessed one for all eternity, actually is communicating his blessedness to us by his teaching. That's why the psalmist connects these two things. Blessed are you, Lord. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist knows that there are active commands in here, or at least implications of the things he describes. He he knows that in a sense, what he is describing leads to the command to seek the Lord, to store up God's word, to declare his word with our lips. Verse 13, to delight in his testimonies more than money. But ultimately, it's the Lord himself who is teaching his people and causing them to grow. It doesn't mean we don't give all our effort to it. All of these are active things. Guarding is an active thing. We have to put everything into it. But God is the source of our blessing. And God is the source, we learn in Psalm 119, 9 through 16, of our purity. And he has given us his word as the means of accomplishing the blessing of our purity. He gives us his word, the Bible tells us. He pours out his spirit on his people, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of purity. But remember what the Bible says. This isn't something that can ever come uh, through one's own efforts. The natural person doesn't accept these things of the spirit of God. They're folly to him. But God, the blessed one, teaches his statutes to his people, and the psalmist cries out, blessed are you, Lord. Now teach me your statutes that I might guard my way and keep it pure. So I wonder, as you think about this text, do you know God alone as the source of your blessing? You can't be saved apart from the work of God on your behalf in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. Do you know that his blessing of you is connected, inseparably, inextricably linked with your purity? This psalm makes it clear, but the rest of the Bible makes it clear as well. Remember what John says, beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. You know that Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He applies it directly then, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's blessedness works itself out in our purity. And finally, let me make this point as well. That all of this, in a sense, comes together in a, particular way for us as individuals in our life of prayer, communing 
with this blessed God. Robert Murray McShane said, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. But you might have thought of this already. Isn't it interesting how the Apostle Paul connects these ideas of purity and guarding your heart with our petitioning the Lord for help? Here's the way Paul puts it in Philippians 4. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word and for the ministry of your spirit. May your word find purchase in the soil of our hearts. And may you, by your spirit, bless us with growth and purity and in love for your word. We ask all of this for our own good, but ultimately we ask it for the glory of Christ and in the name of Christ. Amen.